And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It is Harrison Smith with episode 24, another installment of my cinema podcast. And most of all, thank you for being here. Uh, Looking at a number of things today, the title of this podcast obviously is Consuming Cinema. And uh, we're going to take a look at a number of things with the deluge of content that is out there and the ability to, um, or I should say the inability to discern uh, what is good and what is truly bad and not throwing things up for just a matter of opinion, but looking at the effect of the deluge of, of content that is hitting us and our ability to process it. So it's it's going to be kind of interesting. Uh, one, one of the things that, that topped off Twitter this week uh, was Elizabeth Banks um, taking to the to the media defending Charlie's Angels. And and look, there is no shame. Every actor has had a flop movie. There's there's no shame in that from Harrison Ford to Brad Pitt. You you name the actor going all the way back to the start of of movie making, they've they've had a flop. It's it's unavoidable. Uh she seemed to really be be taking to the uh, airwaves to to lay blame on on a number of different factors. And and the bottom line came down to is uh, some people responded back basically saying that look it's it's not anything to do with sexism or misogyny or or not embracing any type of uh, feminist message it just came down to the fact that it was a movie nobody was really really asking for and that it, even the marketing from what I understand I have not seen the film uh, but from the marketing I understand it was uh, it was mispackaged. Uh, it is really not a remake, according to a number of people, and and please let me know if, if this is wrong, but that it's actually an extension of the previous two Charlie's Angels movies. So someone in the marketing department also dropped the ball on this motion picture. And, and you can go forward and say, well, it's Kristen Stewart, it's this, it's that. I, I really don't know about any of that. The, the movie did not do well. And uh, Banks, you know, defended her film, which she has every right to do so. I I guess the best thing to to do is just go right into this. And from a historical aspect, I want to look back to right after the 9-11 attacks. And and follow me on this thread here, this mental thread as I go through it. And if if you remember, there's a persistent misconception immediately after the 9-11 attacks. And that is, is that people thought that George Bush urged Americans to go shopping. Like that was the best way to combat terrorism after the attacks in, in New York City. But that really wasn't the case. I mean, over the years, it's it, that what he said has been simplified into that message. But, but in reality, Bush said this, and I quote, it's from George Bush, the White House Archives. And he said this on television, it's to tell the traveling public, get on board, meaning planes, go do your business around the country, fly and enjoy America's great destination spots, get down to Disney World in Florida, take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. That's what he was saying. Not once was the word shop or any form of it used. And while we were not directly urged to, quote unquote, go shopping, this simplistic picture of consumerism congruent to the picture of American life, uh, we have accepted an image of of how life should be. So so follow me here as I wind this, this podcast toward the filmmaking industry. Is a good film about updating? What do we really need to enjoy a movie? Does does it have to have all the bells and whistles? Does it need to be current? Does it have to have the latest special effects? You know, we go back to what I said in a previous podcast about dated movies. So let's go a little further with this. 
So we are born. Almost instantly, we are barraged by commercials and television and the media and now the internet and, and 24-hour news and, and digital, digital, digital. We, we accept the mindset that our children must have brand name clothing and, and they must be fed on the latest fad diet and marketed to their respective genders in a media-driven message that, that simultaneously says we should strive for gender neutrality. Television and online viewing assaults the young with images of vapid, smart-mouthed, androgynous, and tarted-up tweens decked out in the latest products. In-between programming is product porn in the way of toys and other items marketed with an image of wealthy children barkers and shills and, and dolls like Bratz and Monster High and Twinkle Toes do, do more to entice pedophiles than their child targets and the parents that must get them. Again, all of this is marketed by shiny, happy children who hail from plenty of money with comfortable lives and a 30-second sensory assault with sexed-up products. This does not include the majority of junk food ads on a kid outlet like Nickelodeon. It's all about what's cool and now and the illusion of knowing more than what you really do. So by the time school starts, children are classified and tracked, even though schools claim that, that they aren't. Any child showing the slightest deviation from the norm, questioning the system, showing boredom for the antiquated educational system, are told that they have learning disabilities and a host of attention deficit disorders that can be alleviated by a bevy of medications that the pharmaceutical industries are ready to dispense. ADD, ADHD, SD, ADD. The list goes on. Outside the scope of, of this podcast, we have social anxiety disorders, various depressions, and other mental disorders that paint a picture of a strung out young adult population unable to cope. Now, follow me here. I'm bringing it right back to the entertainment industry. Look, the, the internet dovetails with the attention deficit issue and, and, and the furthering of immediate gratification. Don't buy films, download them, and don't wait for them to be released. Pirate advanced copies to see it right away, and then consume every leak, spoiler, sneak peek, leaked photo and footage, thus eroding the anticipation for a film and its ability to be an event or something special. Don't watch full films, click on YouTube and watch clips from the films, giving the illusion one has watched the full movie. Bootleg and streaming films are immediately accessible. They can be viewed on technology that debases the medium. While our minds understand that lavish green screening looks cartoonish and sometimes as fake as a 70s Godzilla movie, please go back and, and hear my one episode on film dysmorphia, the viewer accepts that this is the new medium in the standard. Some films were not meant to be watched on tiny tablet and mobile screens, let alone widescreen TVs at home. A byproduct in thinking is that movies are simply made with a click of a mouse and software. They are not. They are product to be consumed. The new perception by a generation is black and white films are old and boring. Long movies, and I, I put long in quotes, are boring. Anything over two years old is, is dated. As the millennials came into their own, they entered into a world of remakes, reboots, and, and what I call bullshit reimaginings. Movies were no longer events that made a summer magical or defined a decade or even brought a message. The industry adjusted to make them pure consumable product, like the auto industry, that could be updated into better models and lines every year. Look, I have a friend right now and a business partner in Los Angeles who, who just told me last night on a phone call, he said, look, the movie industry is over. You know, the, the days of going out and getting pre-sales on things and, and selling something based on, on a, 
uh, cast attachment, those days are over. Movies are no longer being made for entertainment. They are being made for product, he said. And whatever is being made for quality has retreated back to the small screen. And I'll say it again. He said this to me, the movie industry is over. And my God, I hated to hear it as an independent filmmaker. I mean, let's go back to the 80s. We, we saw the rise of the VCRs, the cable industry blanketed the country. Studios joined the rush to get their films out onto cassette, now allowing the consumer to directly control their viewings. The consumer technology sector responded with new TVs, giant screens, projectors, new and bigger tube sets before the microchip and LED revolution coming in less than two decades. Home theater systems started springing up. Look, I, I worked at a video rental store in 1984 and personally helped install dozens of surround sound big screen systems in giant homes and two bedroom trailers. The movie theater was relocated to the living room in the form of forehead VCRs, projection TVs, and speakers dotting walls. There was like this gold rush to home video. And, and I've said recently in some interviews that I, I feel strongly that uh, you know, it's it's ironic that Spielberg is out there complaining about the uh, movie industry being threatened by the streaming industry and uh, the, the rush to get things out on streaming, which debases uh, theatrical content and quality. Quite frankly, I feel that Steven Spielberg and, and George Lucas helped lead the way to that. I mean, they're, they're complaining about the very thing that they helped start. They changed the movie industry forever, both in, in creating the blockbuster and in distribution. So their, their impact on that cannot be understated. However, when it came time to start releasing films onto home video, why wasn't there some kind of summit in Hollywood for the powers that be in Hollywood, whether it was the executives and the, the artists and actors and, and directors, producers, why wasn't there some type of, of smart summit meeting where they could get together and say, all right, there is a huge temptation here to make a lot of money by dumping these movies out onto home video. However, we should preserve some of these films for theatrical release and that they never go to video, but they're released every so often back into the public theatrically for people to enjoy the experience of these films. I will say again, Star Wars and Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I'll even go forward with The Godfather and, and, and films like that, were never meant to be shown on tiny little screens or watched while on a commute to uh, work on a train or bus or whatever. And that's fine if you do it. Like, I'm not arguing that. Jaws and all these films I just mentioned sit on DVD on my shelf and, and I get that and I like the ability to be able to watch them whenever I want even on a 65 inch screen. Don't you think that some of these should have been held as, as culturally relevant because these films really bring people together. I mean, look at the success Lucas had with re-releasing Star Wars. Now I know some of you are gonna say, yeah, but he touched them up, he redid them and he messed them up. I'm, I'm not arguing that, but there was something cool about going to see the original Star Wars film again even if it was touched up, back on the big screen. I've seen Jaws twice now on the big screen in, in revival houses, and watching Jaws in a movie theater with people up on a giant screen is way different than watching it at home, even on a giant screen with surround sound in a room with you know five or six people. It's an entirely different experience. There is something magical and culturally relevant about viewing a film in theaters. So you had this rush to, to get these films out on video. And, and look, I remember the early 
incarnations of these video releases. I mean, pan and scan, grainy copies. I mean, no care or love was even done. I, I talk with Julie Carmen, uh, the star of Fright Night Part 2, and we talk about often uh, trying to get a, a Blu-ray copy of Fright Night Part 2 uh, put out there because the, the limited theatrical that it had, and there's a whole story behind that, the, the, the video release, the DVD release is really some VHS transfer. And it's a pan and scan with grainy copy. And it's a beautiful looking picture. And it's a shame that it doesn't have a proper release. And as films are selected for historical preservation by the government, I'm, I'm going to contest that particular films were meant for the big screen only and were compromised by their home video and TV releases. Some films were specifically shot in black and white. When colored by computers, they, they lose their impact and their contrast and the shadings and, and even whole inferences and, and subtext meaning are lost through the process. Alfred Hitchcock deliberately shot his 1960s Psycho in black and white. It was a choice. While fans would argue coloring, it would be blasphemous, I would go as far as to call it a criminal and a crime against art itself. I mean, think about that. Frankenstein was shot in black and white. The monster's makeup was created to facilitate this artistic choice, among many others. While Karloff was indeed made up in greenish makeup, it was to create a grayish muted pallor to the monster in black and white film. When colorized, the makeup is restored to green, thus giving a comical and, and almost cartoonish effect. Not even almost, it is a cartoonish effect, diminishing the impact of the film and Karloff's magnificent performance. Technology is not meant to mitigate the choices of the auteurs. And you see, here's the whole foundation of this podcast right here, this episode. And that is, if you don't know film, if you don't understand the art of film, you're never going to get that. You need to understand art and artistic choices and artists and filmmakers, all of that. You just don't come in with technology and change it all around because of, for the real sake of, of just updating something. So, so let's look at sequels in consumer cinema. And, and I, I guess one of the best places to start would be Jaws 2. And, and while Jaws 2 was, was not the first sequel, it, it really stands out in, in the modern day as, as kind of like uh, the thing that made studios realize what they were missing out on. As long as there have been films, there have been sequels. I mean, the Thin Man series, the Bowery Boys, and look at Hammer's Dracula films and Universal Monsters, all of that stuff. Sequel was not a new thing. Yes, books and even songs have sequels, but film sequels are the most interesting and accessible to mainstream consumer society. Jaws 2 was made for the sole purpose of cashing in on the industry-changing success of Jaws. Jaws created the summer blockbuster and, and tentpole mentality. Its impact on the American film industry and audiences cannot be underestimated. Entire industries sprouted up around Jaws. With Jaws 2, we had huge new things that, that came out. We had Jaws 2 trading cards and coloring books and models and candies, posters, clothing, toys, and nothing near what we have now. But it started. However, it was Star Wars and its merchandising that not only again changed filmmaking viewing, but merchandising itself. George Lucas built his empire on merchandising and toys, and the universe was never the same. Sequels caught fire, and suddenly every studio was looking for its own franchise, its own brand. The original 1975 Jaws was never meant to have a sequel, let alone become a series of films. The same was said of Psycho. 
Yet by the 1980s, a sequel to the venerated psycho horror film was in the works. Look, Roy Scheider reprised his role of Chief Brody in Jaws 2. He once said he didn't think there was anything wrong with a sequel and a story that gives people a good time. This is affable enough. However, behind the scenes, Scheider was forced into playing Brody again because of a legal issue with Universal Studios. Chief Brody returned with his own gun to his head. And as for Psycho, Anthony Perkins at first resisted reprising his role of Norman Bates. The role of the murderous mama's boy defined him. It made him a star and he never shook it. Universal floated the idea of a sequel 22 years after the first film, and, and Perkins respectfully declined it. Friday the 13th was up to its third installment, I believe, by that time, and Universal wanted its own slasher franchise. When the studio hinted they would make the film without him, possibly using Christopher Walken, if you can picture that as Norman Bates, Perkins had a change of heart. But even small horror films that made big money like Halloween were seen as franchise potential. While John Carpenter clearly intended for his 1978 masterpiece to be a standalone picture, Universal, once again, had other plans. Halloween 2, the 1981 Halloween 2, led to a slew of sequels, and presently there are, what, two remakes by Rob Zombie, and we are now back to continuing the original storyline with Blumhouse. So it, it, Halloween is still around 40 years later. Other films like The Omen, The Exorcist, Friday the 13th, they, they all had sequels, albeit some with mixed success or outright failure. Look, The Exorcist 2 makes my top five list of worst movies of all time. However, Jaws the Revenge, as you know, is my number one for all time worst movie ever made. And again, the argument that Jaws the Revenge is not a movie, but just simply cynical product. <laughs> And again, studios realized that sequels did not have to be good. I mean, look what they did to rush out sequels to King Kong. I mean, Son of Kong was a, a real quick knockoff and, and really an insult to Willis O'Brien. And even Godzilla, the 1954 Godzilla, got a quick sequel to cash in on the, that original movie's success. I mean, Godzilla Raids Again is, is arguably a... A, a decent follow-up to the 1954 Godzilla. I mean, if you go back and look at it, yeah, I, I guess it kind of its importance is that it brought it down the road to franchise potential by in, introducing a a foe monster in the form of Anguirus. But but overall, you know, most people are not saying that that the sequel to Godzilla was really anything to rave about. Sequels were created to bring in more money on on a tried and true product, give the people more of the same. It was a simple formula and, and one that studio accountants could almost rely on as a magic algorithm. It wasn't foolproof, but a sequel to a successful picture mitigated a certain amount of financial risk for the studio. That is why sequels exist. You want to see something interesting, look at the box office revenue, which is available online in a number of places for the Jaws series. And, and you're going to see something pretty interesting. The, the series has clear diminishing returns. But from an actuarial perspective, each one made a solid profit. That's right, even Jaws 3 and 4 made money. Even if the second film, Jaws 2, made just half of the first Jaws revenues, it was worth taking the risk. Another step in the evolution of consumer cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, was George Lucas's 1990s touching up of his original Star Wars trilogy for theatrical re-release. 
Through the wonders of CGI, Lucas could go back and do the things he was unable to do the first time around. More ships, more creatures, and even a CGI job of the hut. And literally milk his audiences several times by offering a new Coke and classic Coke type of home video release. With new digital technology, you could go back and fix, and I put that in quotes, fix whatever you didn't like about your previous films. Unlike colorization, this new tool also allowed dangerous possibilities for censorship and Orwellian cultural revision. Find something politically incorrect? Now you could erase anything deemed offensive. The irony is that studios could have reaped easy profits re-releasing a number of their event motion pictures every so many years with little cash outlay. Now they were all in the home video graveyard. Star Wars had the power of industrial light and magic to revamp the effects and remaster the original films into 3D. There's always talk on, on the internet of, uh, of rumors that, that Spielberg was planning to do a, a 40th reissue of Jaws with a, with a digitally created shark replacing the original Mechanical Bruce. They were going to go back and CGI out the, the Mechanical Shark or, or at least enhance it. And uh, there is also, if you look online, I'm, I'm going to try to provide some links to it, but you just go on YouTube, it's there. They replaced uh, the mechanical shark in Jaws the Revenge with a CGI shark. And while the special effects part of it is, is impressive, uh, the movie is still a piece of shit. So you can't polish a turd. But that does not apply to, to Jaws. Jaws is art. Jaws is a fantastic piece of narrative storytelling. And the mechanical shark that was created for Jaws was, was a piece of art that was done and technology that was made for that film to utilize it. And I've talked about this in previous episodes where you know they, they didn't know what to do to, to make a shark actually act in Jaws when they were planning it. Uh, they, they went as far as to believe for a moment there, I guess for a hot minute, uh, to that they could train a great white shark. And in addition to that, they went to Disney and, and said, do you think you could animate us a real looking shark? And speaking of Disney, they went to Roy Arbogast, who was one of the creators of, of the mechanical squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And of course, that's where Bruce hailed from. And so between Bob Maddie and Roy Arbogast, we, we got the mechanical shark Bruce. And to go back and paint out Arbogast and Maddie's work, in my opinion, is is criminal. To replace Bruce the mechanical shark with a CGI one just because it would look more real is not just an insult. As I said, it's pop culture vandalism. And unfortunately, it also sends a dangerous message to the audience. Nothing is worthwhile because it can simply be altered or changed. Instead of asking an audience to appreciate the perfect dialogue and character development of the original Jaws, the act of remastering puts the focus on the superficial and debases the impact of the original film. Spielberg already had made waves by digitally messing with his alien classic E.T., the extraterrestrial. He had tech wizards erase the guns from FBI hands and replace them with walkie-talkies to make the film more family-friendly. Replacing guns for radios in E.T. is ludicrous. Spielberg was pandering to a politically correct lobby that claims to be focused on the family. In actuality, it is a major sign of weakness and unmitigated defeat for art and cinema, and that is C-I-N-E-M-A. Spielberg's actions were pure cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. He made a seamless film with E.T. and utilized his resources properly. Now he was going back and cynically changing things to appease for the sake of more dollars spent on his film. 
It is a cash grab, and it is cultural vandalism no different than censorship. The focus on turning films into malleable product creates a lack of appreciation for the filmmaking process. There is no longer any type of need for emotional investment into a film. You know that sooner or later it will be touched up or remade, so why vest yourself into it? The Godfather no more needs a remake than the Mona Lisa needs one. Films went from art to reusable products in the space shuttle era. Let's get past the, the restoration part of, of consuming cinema. And let's look at the remake. I mean, the road to the remake is a winding one. There, there is no clear pathway toward the answer of whether they are good or bad, needed or unwanted. It, it comes down to opinion, and, and the matter of fact is they exist. They will continue to be made because there is demand. We have a new generation growing up with incredible access to entertainment. Cell phones, tablets, video game systems, and computers allow instant access to everything. And many find it for free. Attention spans have declined to where even clips of films on YouTube can be taxing on a viewer. Where does this leave character and story development? As certain films were made in black and white for a reason and, and directors made artistic choices in their content, a number of films were made for the scope and breadth of the big screen. Watching Lawrence of Arabia, Raiders of the Lost Ark, or any of the Star Wars films on a big screen is an entirely different experience than squeezing down onto a cell phone or tablet screen. When films lose their purpose, when they are stripped of their intended impact and diluted, colorized, digitally altered, they are diminished. Up until the late 1970s, sequel was kind of a dirty word. Remake has now taken a similar connotation. Is a remake ever justified? Well, the answer is yes, of course. Have remakes been overdone and glutted the market, giving off the impression that Hollywood has lost its creativity and run out of ideas for a quick cash grab? Well, the answer is yes, of course. I've had previous podcasts and I've written blogs about King Kong, the 1976 remake, and the 1998 Godzilla, if that's what you want to call it. I still say it wasn't Godzilla. I mean, they were examples of needless remakes, some would argue. So let's look at King Kong for a minute. Was the Peter Jackson 2005 Kong remake needed? I'm not going into Kong Skull Island and the whole legendary MonsterVerse thing. I'm going back to the remake of the 2005 Kong. And that is, was it terrible? Well, it really depends on who you ask. However, it, in my opinion, it doesn't classify as cinema because Jackson, his love for Kong, first of all, and that it was made with passion and love for the source material with a serious intent to entertain. The 2005 remake, whether you liked it or not, is often a beautiful, albeit green screen digital production. It's often exciting, and, and the ending is as heartbreaking as the original 1933 classic. It took a higher road than the campy, overbloated 1976 remake. So, for many, what, what went wrong? I mean, there are some stellar remakes. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1979. The Blob, the 88 The Blob, the Chuck Russell Blob is fantastic. John Carpenter's The Thing, although... I don't classify The Thing as a dyed-in-the-wool remake. I've, I've said that before. I, I count The Thing as basically a, a more loyal adaptation of, of the source material. And Piranha 3D, I mean, that was a lot of fun. And, and although I enjoyed 1978's Piranha, um, Piranha 3D was a blast, man. And True Grit, the 2013 True Grit. I mean, the list goes on. 
Then there are the lousy remakes, which are usually deemed as unnecessary or even blasphemous for, for touching the original material. I mean, we could go into Poltergeist and Let Me In and Psycho and Planet of the Apes and The Poseidon Adventure, The Stepford Wives. That one really stands out to me. The Grudge, One Miss Call. You can go on and on and on. Good or bad, there is a common thread of logic or even rationalization that binds them. And that is the need to update the story for a modern audience. While the intent sounds noble, the issue is when the update is geared not toward an audience, but rather a consumer base. And there is a difference, folks. I mean, let's look at the good old days. Well, movie theaters or movie houses were once opulent places to spend an evening out. Comedy and newsreels played before the main attraction. Often there were musical overtures preceding the film to build anticipation. Regardless, even smaller non-event films seemed like a big deal. Movie magic was contagious and spread through the audience. Going out to the movies was indeed a night out, and the movie was part of a true experience. It thrilled, emotionally manipulated, made folks laugh, scream, jump, applaud, even faint. Then came the multiplex and the expensive touches of curtains and ornate seats and carpets and balconies downsized to large black boxes with stadium seating and a big white screen at the front. Audiences were now consumers and the goal was to move asses into seats by rotating multiple shows and moving people like cattle down the chute. It worked and soon your local bijou died out and the malls built accommodating cineplexes with three, four, six, ten screens. Theaters became a confederacy of boxes connected by winding hallways dotted with signs to point you to the right screen. And I know, because I managed one, and I worked in one when I was a kid. Movie magic lost a bit of its luster around this time. While movies were created to make money, there was something in the showmanship and presentation that made going to a movie so damn special. I may be older, but I'm far too young to be lamenting about the good old days of when movies were movies. Indeed, I, I was lucky enough to see many of the films at, at a local old-time theater. I remember the, the one theater I used to go to was, was run down with water-stained walls and ceiling tiles and tattered stage curtains, and they even had a condemned balcony that sometimes you know, we would sneak into and, and it had substandard projection and sound. However, it was more fun to see a movie at that historic theater than the cold black boxes up at the mall. Seeing The Empire Strikes Back at the old theater was a fun time and would not have been the same experience at the mall cineplex. A movie was an event. Often the plots needed time to unfold. But when the system of viewing films changed and an emphasis was on time and moving bodies and into theaters and out for the next screenings, audiences shifted their focus on their entertainment. The burgeoning technology of home video and even the digital revolution, I mean, it further decimated attention spans and patience for films and, and for their stories to unfold. I was just recently watching two older films. Uh, one was Rosemary's Baby and the other was Taxi Driver. And I'm telling you, the way of the pacing of these films and the fact that there is no opening hook on either film to, to kind of draw you in and get your ADD up and primed, uh, these films would fail today. 
I mean, watch the opening of Taxi Driver. It's so artistic with montages of shots of New York streets because New York is a character in the movie. And, and the same goes for Rosemary's Baby. I mean, the, the, the long skyline shots going down to the ornate hotel, which is more of like a, a castle kind of thing for something evil inside. That's because you have to understand art. And, and we're just not seeing that now. Everything's got to be in and out and catch you and hold you and, and keep you stimulated. Because of that summer blockbuster mentality, I mean, films need to be bigger in every way. The, the sequel was generating cash, but the remake was another revenue stream. So, so let's use King Kong as, as that example, going back to Kong. Most will not argue on, on the 1933 film being a classic. However, by 1975, in the wake of Jaws, it was seen as old, and, and worst of all, it was in black and white. The stop motion made it seem dated. It was time for a newer Kong, a sexier Kong, and, and Dino De Laurentiis, the big-budget William Castle of his time, well, he knew showmanship, and, and he delivered. So we go into this kind of need-versus-want mentality. So the issue I have is this. Was there anything in the 1933 Kong that needed updating? The 1976 remake did not deliver more dinosaurs or, really frankly, any more action. The innovative artistry of Willis O'Brien was replaced by Rick Baker's Man in a Monkey Suit. And, and albeit a good one, there's no doubt. I mean, Rick Baker is, is amazing. He is a wizard. And while the suit effects and makeup, like I said, were, were impressive, it didn't hold the same magic that the original film had. What exactly does dated mean? I still find Kong's entrance and exit in the 1933 film memorable and moving. The, the 1976 film was bigger, it was in color, and, and I got to see it in, in the movie theaters, but it didn't really bring anything new to the table. Some remakes have the best of intentions. Updating a film almost 50 years old is one thing, but, but what about the case of Poltergeist or, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, let's go further and, and surpass the remake. Let's, let's go to the repackaging. What happens when filmmakers go back and basically refilm the best scenes of previous films and install them into new timelines and pass this off as some kind of hybrid sequel? I mean, we saw this was the case with Jurassic World and, and Terminator Genesis and a number of other films. Why does a classic like Poltergeist need updating for today's audiences? Another argument is who is the audience? I mean, if you go by data, certain data, it shows millennials don't go out to the movies like previous generations. They, they stay at home, they text, they communicate via social media, and, and they pirate. They don't buy or rent films, let alone buy tickets. And, and look, I'm not saying all of them. Again, this is a general statement. I mean, they'll torrent over buying tickets, and, and they're perfectly content seeing a film on a phone or, or a monitor, a computer monitor. Does the present generation think of film as art? or simply more product to consume. I mean, it's time to look at the endless reboots of Spider-Man. There were three major Sony films under the direction of Sam Raimi. And as most fans will agree, the, the third film killed the franchise. However, in no time, Sony announced a reboot of their hero. And instead of going with a fourth film in the original timeline, they, they did a, a do-over with uh, Andrew Garfield. And, and now we, again, we have Tom Holland and, and they're gonna reboot it again. 
And there are a lot of reasons for this. And, and I was not a fan of any of these versions of these films. As said, I'm, I'm really not a superhero guy. I appreciate them being made. And I understand that there's there's a huge audience for them, obviously. And I see no harm in them. I mean, it's just simply, it's it's just not my thing. I, I'd take a giant monster stepping on buildings over superhero battles for New York or, or whatever. And that's just me. And that's fine. That's That's why we still have a free society. At least I hope we do. I mean, look, Warner Brothers did this successfully with its Batman series, right? I mean, following the debacle of, of Batman and Robin and, and I will still say the, the absolutely annoying Batman forever. I mean, Warner's went back to the drawing board and totally rebooted the franchise. Chris Nolan came on board and reinvented Tim Burton's Batman into the successful Dark Knight trilogy. And, and you know, as of this time, we have how many other Batman movies besides Joker now and, and references to Batman. We have the Robert Pattinson Batman coming up. We have our Ben Affleck Batman. I mean, the Man of Steel remake gave us a darker Superman in the vein of, of the brooding style, you know, Batman kind. And, and that film was hollow and is bereft of any emotional connections. I, Overall, the film was loud, it was product placement, and I thought it was a big video game. I remember watching the film and thinking, my God, do I have a headache after watching this movie? And there are just so many comparisons I could make. Yes, I know Richard Donner's is kind of the touchstone, and you can't always compare, and they are two different films. And But this one was even different from the well-intentioned Brandon Routh film, and, and the fact that there just wasn't really much joy in Superman in, in The Man of Steel and, and the subsequent Henry Cavill iterations. Attention span deprived audiences of today find no reason to become vested into characters. Why care about Garfield's Spider-Man or Tom Holland's Spider-Man or Henry Cavill's Superman when they will just likely get reboots in a few years? They'll just keep plugging actors in and out of the character. And, and so there really is no emotional investment into these characters. Simply films become product to be consumed, processed, and unfortunately, shit out. And on that respect, let's look at the McMovie. If I walk into a McDonald's in Paris or, or Camden, New Jersey, I want my Big Mac to be the same. The same processed attitude applies to present day filmmaking. The reboot is just a burger, repackaged, but it tastes the same. Jurassic World is no different than Jurassic Park. While it no longer comes in a styrofoam box, it, it tastes the same. While fast food is a fine treat, it should not become the staple of our diets. Yet with each remake, it is becoming a part of our diet. And we are losing the ability to taste the difference between fast food and cuisine. Remakes, reboots, reimaginings, or whatever the hell term you want to use are becoming bigger parts of our diets and audiences are becoming lethargic in their consumption of this product. There was literally a moment in Jurassic World when I wanted to stand up and shout to the entire theater, don't you people get it? It's the same goddamn movie. We're being screwed. In fact, I was waiting in the ticket line with five college guys ahead of me. And they were likely kids when the first Jurassic Park came out. And we were going to be late for the start of the film. And one of them was very vocal about missing the opening. And I interrupted him and I said, I mean, what do you think we're going to miss? Some, some wide aerial shots of the island, people arriving, the Jurassic Park theme, and, and people staring in wide-eyed wonder at dinosaurs. I mean, that's pretty much how they all start, right? After the film, the guy saw me in the exiting crowd and he came over and said, dude, that's exactly how that shit opened up. I replied that shit was the right word for what we just spent our money on. Yet people look pleased as pigs and shit leaving the theater. 
So they got their Big Mac and all was well. And, and I guess in the end, there's really just no harm in that. If you liked it, you liked it. Big fucking deal. Look, I've, I've said this in interviews and such. You know, the thrill of watching Harrison Ford do his own stunts in Raiders of the Lost Ark was diminished by the green screen fakery of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Seeing Han and Leia parted in Empire Strikes Back and Chewie throwing his head back with that anguish roar of defeat sent chills up my spine. Hearing Peter Finch tell the world that he was mad as hell and he wasn't going to take it anymore in network has been supplanted by green screen, computers, MTV-style editing, camera filters, lens flares, and, and scripts that are just no longer stories, but set-piece to-do lists that shepherd us along from one event in the film to another. Directors, not all, but, but a number of directors just no longer direct, but they, they rather manage their films, making sure they hit the merchandising targets that allow a franchise to be born. Out of all of this, our culture suffers. We lose a kind of innocence that movies can bring. We lose perhaps empathy in the process as well. Audiences no longer care and they become really harsh fucking critics. They just want to eat. Few discuss the taste and texture and aroma of a Big Mac. Few even look at the nutritional value. It tastes good and they can keep making them as long as they taste good. And that's cinema, folks. And that's consuming cinema. And much like the computers that have replaced effects and makeup artists, it's garbage in and it's garbage out. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. And I look forward to the next episode. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.